0: Our scripture reading for today comes from Mark chapter 12. Uh, The scripture is from verses 1 through 17, but I will be reading starting verse 13. Paying taxes to Caesar. You can find that on page 848. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Um, My kids are all in Lake Tahoe, my family, and I had to work. So here I am. Um, But um, I'm kind of glad they weren't here because they've been bugging me about guinea pigs for a while. And I would have had so much trouble talking them out of it. So thank you. Let's pray. Lord, um, we love your word and we desire God for you to speak to your church we ask God that this wouldn't be just a time of more information and knowledge but there would be a deeper understanding that leads to more than just conviction but it would lead us into a deeper knowledge and an imitation of you Jesus that our lives would be transformed that we would be changed people By your power, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We're first going to take a look at the parable uh, Jesus told before moving into this trap that uh, Hewan just read for us that the Pharisees and Herodians set up for Jesus. And to understand this parable in verses 1 through 12, uh, we need to pay attention to verse 12 where it is written, For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. That pronoun, them, refers to the chief priests and the scribes who are found in Mark chapter 11, verse 18. They were seeking a way to destroy Jesus, and there was quite a procession when Jesus came into Jerusalem. Uh, He came in riding on a colt that had never been ridden. Uh, That is what royalty did. They rode on uh, a horse that never had been ridden before. People were putting robes and they were putting branches on the road for Jesus, escorting him into the city. People were shouting, Hosanna, meaning save us, as he made his way into Jerusalem. And this procession made the ruling council of the Jews uh, pretty nervous, pretty uneasy. Then when Jesus gets into Jerusalem, he drives the people out of the temple who made it a den of robbers instead of a house of prayer and then there's this fig tree story where he curses the fig tree this symbol of the temple symbolizing a fruitless empty tree as a fruitless empty religion or temple and they just he just made them angry and made them angrier and angrier which leads to this question or led to this question of what authority do you have jesus who who gave you this authority because they felt that they were the ones who were to give the authority. And so this rabbi who comes from this family of ill repute, who comes from this education that is less than lacking, who comes from just hanging out with sinners all the time, who is this guy to just come in here and do the things that he's doing? And so they ask him that question about authority, and Jesus gives them a counter question which would have answered their question about authority if they were just honest about their answer. But rather than being honest, they answer, we don't know. We don't know about the baptism of John, whether it's uh, a divine thing or whether it's a man thing. We don't know, and the reason why they answer that way is because if they answer, it's a divine thing, then that's the answer to their question, then why aren't you listening to me? And if it's a man question, then, hey, that's uh, John. He's a prophet, and the people would have been kind of upset at that sort of an answer. Now, then we, Jesus goes, goes through this and then it's, it's after these series of events that Jesus spoke this parable and, and Jesus used this scenario within this parable that, were, that was pretty familiar to people in that day, just as we are probably familiar with this sort of a parable today as well, because in the Bay Area, we are very familiar with people who don't live in the United States, but they own property here. Uh, many of you probably have bid against them in your latest home purchase, <clears throat> but same thing happened in Judea. Same thing happened in Galilee. Large parcels of land were owned by non-Jews. They were owned by non-Palestinians, and and so these absentee landowners they would lease out their property for farming or or raising livestock or making wine or various things. So in the case of winemaking, a a vineyard would be leased out to a tenant, and these tenants would pay rent to the landowner who lived far away in another country. And so oftentimes the the payment was what, the, the way that they made a payment wasn't necessarily money, but what was produced from the land. So if you owned an olive orchard, you would pay in olive oil. If you were Ranching livestock, you would pay within that livestock. So if it's sheep, it's wool. If it's a vineyard, you'd pay in wine. If it's fruit trees, you'd pay in dried fruit. So, you, so, so this idea of leasing out property was very well known, just as it is well known to us, people we send checks to elsewhere. And so here's that backstory to what we have today here in verses 1 through 12. So let's read verses 1 and 2. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And so with this barter type of a payment, the, the landowner can't just collect monthly payments. They... They might be in a period of sowing, a season of sowing. So there's nothing to offer as a payment. So the landowner collected payments at a proper season, the season of reaping. And, so, and, and this was this time for the payment when the landowner sent a servant to collect this payment, but they didn't pay, and instead they did this. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now, not only was that illegal, unethical, this is also unscriptural, unbiblical, And it's this unscriptural living that Jesus pointed out that really drove these religious leaders crazy and mad. These leaders knew the scriptures. They knew what Jesus was talking about when Jesus used this vineyard as a parable and and not some other type of produce or not some other type of animal. When Jesus used a vineyard in this parable, it wasn't about wine grapes. It was about the people of God. Let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7. This will give us more of a background of why Jesus used a vineyard in his parable. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So do you see the picture that Jesus was painting here with this parable of the vineyard. The chief priests and the scribes, they, they recognize this and they, they see it really clearly and they, they are beyond furious that Jesus addressed them like this because the vineyard is Israel. The landowner is God. The servants are the prophets. The, the tenants are, are like the people, like the chief priests and the scribes and the son is Jesus Jesus was confronting them with this story in just a really ingenious way. He he knew the depth of their scriptural knowledge and Jesus is tapping into that knowledge to confront them about how they've been living and he knows what they are thinking and their failure to recognize him as Messiah. And Jesus is just brilliant. He's brilliant at how he's weaving all of this stuff. He knows that these guys are full of hate and they're full of envy. He knows that they want to kill him. He knows that they don't accept him as Messiah. And this parable is calling them out on their hard-heartedness. Just as Jesus is telling them this story in real time, he's revealing all of this stuff about them. And Jesus doesn't tell this story from a mean spirit. He, he told it in this way to directly confront them, but it, it gave them room to repent. It gave them room to change without losing face because not everyone connected the dots between what Jesus' parable was and how, who he was directing this to. Verse 4, again, he sent to them another servant, another prophet, Prophet. God, God sent many prophets, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully, and he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. All of these chief priests, all of these scribes, they knew their history. They knew their history of rejecting Prophet after prophet after prophet. Some of the prophets they beat up. Some of the prophets they killed. And they have this history of rejecting the prophets of God. Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, verse 34, "'O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets "'and stones those who are sent to it, "'how often would I have gathered your children together "'as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, "'and you were not willing.'" Jerusalem is the place where people recognize God's power they recognize God's presence it's where their purposes were made clear to them spiritually this is the place where all the jewish tribes went on pilgrimage jerusalem is where they all go to celebrate these feasts that where they all look and, and sing the psalm of ascents together going up to Jerusalem. It's, it's to be a holy city. But its history is full of killing prophets. One that kills the prophets. Time and time again, God sends prophets to speak to his people. And time and time again, they reject those who's, who are sent. And they beat them and they kill them. Verse 6, he had still one other, a beloved son, Jesus, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. The beloved son. People were at Jesus' baptism and they heard a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. That's in Mark chapter 1, At the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are up on that mountain, and they heard a voice come out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And so they've heard this title, beloved son used for Jesus, and Jesus confronted them of their plans to kill him. He knew their hearts. He knew their intent. And what he prophesied in this parable did come true. Verse 8, And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. Now, under the law, the tenants would be accountable for murder. They were going to keep murdering those who came to the vineyard to collect payment. So capital punishment could be a justifiable punishment. But it's not just capital punishment that gets these guys mad. They knew the law. They knew that people who murder are accountable for those crimes. But it's this second part that is the real burn. My kids love to say burn to each other when they... Burn. I I thought that was for me when I was a kid. Everything makes its thing back around, uh, like, burn. I remember that. And you go like this, right? So. And give the vineyards to others. That's the burn. That's the burn. It's not like you're going to kill me. I don't care if you kill me. I kill you, right? So you can kill me. You got it. You got it. I mean, you can kill me. You can kill me, but but give this land to somebody else? That never. That one, we can't stand that one. You can kill me, but you you can't give this land that you gave us. This land's promised to us by God, and it's seared into their minds the, the purpose and place that God gave them. It is an unthinkable thing that this land can be anybody else's except for them unthinkable that this temple could be destroyed. And what is this talk about the temple being torn down and and raised three days later? This is just silly talk. This is impossible stuff. If you kill me, I don't care. I don't care if you kill us. And so the chief priests and the scribes, why do they not care? They believe in the resurrection. They believe that the presence of God is right there. They believe that they're God's chosen people. Death is not a big thing. We could deal with death. But this vineyard, this being taken away from us, no way. We're going to fight. We're going to kill you for that. And so you hear what Jesus said in Matthew 21, verse 43. This is Matthew's account of this story. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits because you're an empty religion. You are a fruitless temple. You're just like this fig tree. It is empty. It wasn't the potential of capital punishment that was so insulting to them. It was this giving of their vineyard. That's the insulting thing. They believed that that vineyard was theirs, and it could never be anybody else's. It is forever theirs. But then Jesus tells them, otherwise, you're going to lose it. And see, the the other people hearing this story, they don't quite get the spiritual indications to this story. They just follow it to its logical, reasonable, justifiable conclusion, which can be found in Matthew 21, verse 41. They, this is everyone else listening to the story, said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Everybody can see where this type of evil behavior leads. It leads to death. You're killing people, it's going to lead to death. But they couldn't see it themselves. And, and rather than repent and move forward with, with, not move forward with their evil plan, all This is all happening in front of the the disciples, and I wonder if this cursing of the fig tree story that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it's becoming clearer and clearer to them. This is the fruitlessness. This is the emptiness of this religion. Jesus went to this fig tree. He was hungry, and, and there was no fruit because it wasn't the season for fruit. Jesus cursed that tree, not because he didn't like fig trees, as a live parable to show them what's happening. And he used that as a teaching moment, likening that fruitless fig tree to what was happening with the people of Israel who were practicing this empty religion in the temple. People who knew a lot about God, but they weren't living lives of God. They were good at religion, but but they they weren't good at living godly lives. And this fig tree and this parable of the tenants, they're, they're related stories. They're not separate stories. They're related. The fruitlessness of the fig tree, of the temple, of the tenants, of the religious leaders, they're all related. Will be taken away. Given to a people producing fruit. There will be a new Israel that will include Jews who believe in Jesus as Christ and Gentiles who believe Jesus as Christ. First Peter chapter two, verses six through 10. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Others God will give this vineyard to. It is everyone who repents and believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not a blanket judgment on all Jews, It's, it's a greater invitation to include everyone who receives the good news of Jesus, regardless of their background, nation, tribe, tongue, including Jews. And the history of what happened to God's prophets, the servants, it it has been really, really sad. They were beaten up or they were killed. God sent his beloved son, whom was also rejected by this religious Jewish council. and, And the very one who is rejected is the most important one to receive. Verse 10, Mark 12. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus quoted here from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, and he's asking a rhetorical question, because of course they read the scripture. Of course they know this scripture. Jesus is that stone that the builders rejected, but he's going to be the cornerstone, the stone that holds everything together. It was his plan all along to come as a humble servant, as the last who will be first, who would sacrifice himself for our gain. Marvelous, yet still rejected. John recorded for us in his gospel, John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Today we have many people who go to church for other reasons than simply communing with God. Um, I've met quite a few people who are at church looking for a spouse. It's, it, it's a great place to find one. It's a great place to find one. It, it worked for me. I, that's, that's where Katie and I met. But that's not the primary reason, hopefully, that if you are looking for a spouse, that you are coming to church. Now, hopefully, that's not the primary reason hopefully it's to seek a deeper communion with God. To be able to receive the vineyard he has for us. But if you don't have the faith to receive the good news of Jesus, the vineyard is not for you yet. And here's the really, really dangerous thing. The more you hear about Jesus... And there's not this change of heart or this, this faith that develops. The, the harder it gets to be able to be at that place, to receive the beloved son as the one who was sent by the landowner. This, this callousness, this hardness develops because you're accustomed to killing. You're accustomed to beating the prophet. You're accustomed to killing the prophet. That everything about you is now your own because you think that this vineyard, this kingdom that you are in is yours. You think it is your kingdom. And that's a lie. Because the kingdom is not yours. Our, our next story about rendering the things to Caesar that are Caesar's, it will, it will prove this. Because we live here and not everything is our own. Because anything that is ours in this country, we, we had to pay taxes for, right? We, we, we had to pay. So we are under authority, we realize this, we realize that this is not our kingdom because we actually pay the taxes first and then whatever's left, that's ours because they always get theirs. We never get ours and they never get theirs. It does not work like that. They always get theirs and then we get what's left. And so these religious leaders, they were really hard-hearted toward Jesus. And they've, they've heard so much about Jesus and, and what he taught. And for a few, it led to repentance and acceptance. But most of them rejected Jesus. Verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. It's really fascinating that in this parable, the tenants killed the son... And they recognized him. They, they know who the heir is before they kill him. Is it possible that people reject Jesus today, not because they don't recognize Jesus for who he is as the Son of God, but because there's so much hostility towards him and that they don't want to give up their own kingdoms? They don't want to give up what they think that they have That he's recognized as the son, a rightful heir to the kingdom of the vineyard. But the tenants of today, they don't want to acknowledge whom the real owner of the vineyard is. And rather than working with the son Jesus, what what must be done to be in the vineyard? People want to kill him. They walk away from him. They they challenge him. They reject him. Where are you this morning with Jesus? Jesus. In the thoughts of, is this vineyard really yours, or do you realize you're you're in a landowner's vineyard? And so these guys walked away, they formed a new team to come against Jesus. This time it was the Pharisees and the Herodians who who came to Jesus against Jesus to, to, to plot this plan to say, you know what, we're we're gonna ask him a question to pin him, to pick a side, to pick a party. We're going to ask him a question where he's going to have to choose between loyalty to the Romans or loyalty to this extremist group, the zealots, this religious group here. And so this alliance between the Pharisees and the Herodians, it goes back to the early days of Jesus' ministry. It can be found in Mark chapter 3 verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So this It's not any surprise here when we read verse 13 in Mark 12. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. They've been partnering to... Come against Jesus for a while now, just as Psalm chapter 2, verse 2, where the psalmist wrote, And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The Herodians were threatened politically by Jesus. The Pharisees were threatened religiously, spiritually, socially, theologically, ethically, financially. So, so they both want to get rid of Jesus. Verse 14, And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, they didn't ask this out of curiosity. They didn't ask this to learn or or gain some deeper understanding. They asked this to trap Jesus with his answer. And, And you can tell by the close ended questions they asked, which, which started out with this kind of false flattery, thinking that, you know, this flattery could possibly move Jesus to just answer wrongly. And what they said about Jesus, they, they, were, they were right. This, these were true statements, but, but their intent was to get rid of Jesus. It doesn't matter if he's thrown into jail by the Romans because he, he spoke against Caesar or he's assassinated by the zealots because he spoke in favor of Caesar's taxation. They just want him gone. So they don't care. What they failed to understand was that Jesus already had a zealot in his discipleship group by the name of of Simon the you know Simon the zealot and they already he already had this tax collector in in his group named Levi also known as Matthew in, in this discipleship group and I'm sure that they had these lively discussions as Levi and uh, Simon were chatting about things that they, they probably got along really really well like my daughters they, just like that and so this wasn't anything that caught Jesus off guard. Jesus is very familiar with this. He's been dealing with this kind of relationship between Simon and, and Matthew for like three years. So, them bringing up this question, Jesus must have been like, are you, are you serious? You know how I have already dealt with this before? Because he's already had these enemies Simon and Matthew love each other, that they're breaking bread with each other and they're eating and they're praying and they're fellowshipping with each other within this group. And these guys really think, yeah, we got them. I mean, Jesus has been living like this for the last three years. Reconciling people who hate each other. Restoring relationships with people who hate each other. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. These guys were all hell-bent of, uh, in getting rid of Jesus that they, they straight up just lie before the governor Pilate in Luke chapter 23. Look at... Look at what they accuse Jesus of in, in light of Jesus' answers here in Mark 12. Luke 23, verse 2. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. It's, it's a flat-out lie. Even though they know breaking the Ten Commandments, you know, bearing false witness, they know that that's a commandment. They know thou shalt not murder is a commandment. They know about covetousness. They're wondering what Jesus had is breaking a commandment. Yet they still present these things. So even with Jesus' brilliant answers, these guys will stop at nothing to get rid of Jesus. And they, they keep putting Jesus to the test. And Jesus asks, why? Why did Jesus ask Why? Well, when Jesus faced Satan's temptations in Mark chapter 4, he told the devil in Mark chapter 4, verse 7, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And yet, here it is again. It's happening again. So it makes me wonder, is the devil the one using these guys to put Jesus to the test? Jesus goes along with this test, and he he asked for a denarius, which was the currency used to pay taxes to Rome. And on the denarius is this picture of Tiberius Caesar. We have a slide of this. And on the other side of that coin was this inscription that read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, great high priest. Because, you know, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, he claimed to be divine. He claimed to be God. Tiberius claimed to be the son of the divine, the son of this God, Augustus. Now, for those of you who are tracking with what I'm saying, you you catch how charged Jesus' language was about being the son of God, about being the great high priest, because here is also Tiberius Caesar claiming the same things. Yet he's somebody of reputation, of power, of money, of all these different things that they were hoping for in a king, and yet here's Tiberius Caesar that has all of that stuff, yet he's the most oppressive, terrible ruler that is putting these guys in oppression. Yet they don't see this stuff. Do you really want a ruler like that? And so they asked these closed-ended questions about paying taxes to Caesar, and Jesus said, yeah, pay the tax. Pay it. And this must have gotten them so excited because they're like, you know, we got him. He said pay the tax. And so these zealots and everyone who hates this Roman occupation, they're going to get Jesus for us. We don't have to worry about this anymore. But then what does he say? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things to God that that are God's. And so this denarius has Caesar's face on it. And the Romans minted the coins. And the, and the Romans have done some things with your tax money. Like they built the Roman roads. And they provide this security and military and all this stuff. So yeah, pay pay to Caesar what's Caesar's. They're providing you these services. They provide you these roads. They, they provide you this military protection and all this stuff. Yeah, pay it. But on your lives, there's this imprint of God. God who made you. God who has done everything meaningful in your life for you. And so you pay to God what is God's. The taxes of Rome, they're paid through their currency, the face of Caesar's right on that. Those taxes are required to be paid anywhere within the Roman Empire, anywhere where the Roman Empire has dominion. Within the kingdom of God, though, What is required is the repentance of sin. The the things that have separated us from God require a repentance of, a change of, and, and faith in Jesus to restore our heavenly citizenship and communion to Almighty God. We do have responsibility to our respective state and an ultimate responsibility to the kingdom of God. Now, some people disregard what is happening in our earthly kingdoms and that is not a biblical thing. We have a responsibility to our earthly kingdoms. And then there are others who are, are disregarding of the kingdom of God and they are just about the earthly kingdoms, which is also not a responsible way for us to live. We have responsibility is to tend to both earthly kingdoms and heavenly kingdoms. It is not an either-or proposition. It is a both-and. And so that being said, we don't render to God what is Caesar's. And so what's one such thing is taxes. We, we pay them. It's our, it's our states. And so, of course, God will do what he does with such taxes. He's sovereign, but... We still pay them. We are still responsible for our earthly kingdoms. And we are not to render to Caesar what is rightfully God's. What is that? One such thing is worship. We don't worship our political systems. We don't worship our ideologies. We don't worship our political parties. The Worship is God's alone. And when Jesus answered like this, they, they, they marveled. When Jesus told the parable against them, they left and they went away. And and here, they marvel when he shares about paying to Caesar what is Caesar. And so what's fascinating fascinating is that in this marveling, they don't repent. They don't change. They just marvel. See, Jesus is not looking for admirers of him. Admirers aren't transformed into Christ-likeness. Followers are. People can marvel at God all they want for everything that he's done, but they're no closer to God than those who just leave and walk away. Some closing questions for us just to ponder as we enter into a time of communion and enter into a time of worship. Are any of us putting Jesus to the test? And if we are, why why are we doing that? Are we too biased towards earthly kingdoms or heavenly kingdoms, and we're not responsible for both? This is something that does concern me about the church. Uh, there's such a strong bent for us about social justice. What concerns me about the church is we've gone so far into serving the earthly kingdoms and what that means, and and siding with political parties and making these kind of claims on earthly terms and doing these things, leaving God out of it. There's also another side of it, too, where I think there are less people who struggle with this in our context here, in our church and in the Bay Area. I think we struggle more with tending to the earthly kingdoms and forgetting about God. But there's also a minority here that is so heavenly minded that there are no earthly good. That all they think about is God and prayer and worship and coming to church and doing all these things, but then you don't clothe the naked. You don't feed the hungry. What's up with that? We need Jesus to direct us to do both, not just to marvel at him, but to follow him. Let's pray. Lord, I do lift up our congregation, God, and ask that in any way that we have misrepresented who you are, that you would forgive us and that you would change us. I pray, God, that you would speak to individuals in our church about where they stand with things, about being too heavily kingdom-minded and no earthly good or too earthly-minded that they don't have their sights on you. And so God, would you show us, would you give us the wisdom to navigate these things that are in front of us? May we realize that you do have this wonderful gift of a vineyard for us. But we too can have it taken away with our empty practices of religion, with our fruitlessness, with us just getting caught up with being a house of robbers rather than a house of prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.